You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Those that think that members of Congress are just plain crazy will like the story of Richard Kelly, a Republican congressman from Florida, because before the 1974 midterm, he goes out and gets a team of psychiatrists to evaluate him, and they all report that he's not crazy. And he publishes that report before the midterm and says, if you elect me, I'll be the only member of Congress who is certifiably not crazy. I'm Richard Kelly. Vote for me. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It works. And Kelly wins. And as we'll get into, the 74 midterm is bad for the Republican Party, but he's one Republican who makes a gain. There are a few. He's a maverick congressman. The reason that he has himself evaluated is because people are questioning his sanity, mostly other politicos involved in Dade County and other parts of Florida. He's almost kicked out of the Florida legislature for just being crazy, and he's a judge, and at least twice they try to remove him from the judiciary. He gets the nomination in 74 because Republicans don't have another candidate, and a lot of them don't want to run. It's not a good year. He gets a weak opponent. He's able to win. He does become a congressman for several terms, opposes food stamps, opposes the bailout of New York City, opposes the bailout of the Chrysler Corporation, even though many others did. He thinks in his mind that the Carter administration is now out to get him because they wanted him to vote for the Chrysler bailout. Kelly is caught on video stuffing his pockets with money from a donor who's giving him $25,000, who turns out to be an FBI informant. This is part of the Abscam scandal. And what does Kelly say when he's prosecuted? Hey, I was conducting my own secret undercover operation. I was trying to find out who in my staff was corrupt. That's why I took that money. Prosecutors say, okay, then why don't you report it to the police or the FBI? I'm not going to do that. That would break my cover. Well, then why do we have receipts of you spending this 25000 on personal items? I had to make it look good. Haven't you ever done undercover operations? Prosecutors don't buy it. They probably, The judge actually wants to get Kelly off, feels that he's a law-abiding citizen, just kind of entrapped by the FBI. This is a criticism of Abscam, and that doesn't work. He is convicted, gets 13 months federal prison. Maybe he was crazy after all. Okay, so the theme song that you've heard, you know, that was written and produced by Chris Novenbrino, who also does Don't Worry About the Government podcast. He's been on the show. He's really now concentrating on his music, which I think is excellent because he's great at it. Uh, He's the designer of that theme song. 
A lot of my listeners have podcasts or videos or other things they're doing. If you want a music bed, talk to Chris. He's good at it. Uh, you can reach out to him on Instagram. That is Instagram.com slash Dr. Underscore Nov, Dr. N-O-V, and or at Chris Novembrino at gmail.com. N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O. Chris Novembrino at gmail.com. For any music that you need, work something out. He's good. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-B. Why should I donate to the Patreon when you have ads? Well, you know, it's a contribution to the show. I use Patreon funds help to fund the basic expenses of the program, where the ads are something that I'm sort of putting away and storing, and there might be a time where I could do this full-time at some point. Um, but the basic expenses of the show, books, journals, website costs, everything else, it's a lot that goes into it. Equipment is uh, from there. You know, you wear out a laptop a lot faster when you're doing a podcast than just an everyday normal life. I'm proud to say that if you're listening to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, you get a sense of both of those, that we've provided you enough information to be a little more nuanced about midterms. Like, you'll hear a lot of people say, the president's party always loses seats in the House in a midterm. And we have talked about it since 2006. I've had episodes on this topic where, you know, I think we had one called the six-year itch, where president loses seats in that second year midterm. They also lose seats in the first year midterm. But there's more to the story than that. And that's why we had episodes like the Lonely Midterm 1970 or the Seinfeld Midterms About Nothing 1990 and 1978. And it's not me. I don't predict things. That's not my job. I'm not a prognosticator. But sometimes it happens. Because when you're studying history, that can provide insights, possibly, on the future. I really use it more to understand events. But I was watching generic ballots, for instance. I was looking at the unemployment rate, a little lower. The generic ballot difference between Democrats and Republicans, nowhere near where you saw it in 2010 or 1994. And that's why I did a few episodes of these more nuanced midterms, where it's not clear. 1974 is not an example of that. There's a wipeout. For the Republicans, and as we'll talk about a little later, based on a listener question, Democrats gain more than 40 seats while they're already controlled the House. They get near a veto-proof majority in Congress. But other elections, the President's party loses seats, but not that much, such as Nixon's 1970, where you got 12 seats. People are writing it off as almost a victory. And not Nixon himself. He goes to bed angry on that. He wanted the House back. So he set his own expectations high and then didn't bust them. But looking back at history, it's clear to me anyway that Nixon had a kind of stave midterm. So did Jimmy Carter in 78. And so did George H.W. Bush in 1990. And now you can add to that Joseph Biden. As everyone has said, Lindsey Graham included, not that he's the arbiter of all truth, but this was not a red wave. Nary a red ripple, really. But all you really needed was a red splash to take the House of Representatives, and it looks like that's going to happen. 
The rest of it is the expectations game, which is oh so important in politics. It still is, even in the social media time. It still is. How you frame things, how you set up things, very important. So if the setup is you're going to win 40, 60 seats and you don't, that's a problem politically because you're losing mandate, popular support, um, internal problems, bickering within the party. These are all things the GOP faces. So it's kind of a loss in that respect. Now, on the other hand, they're getting the gavel. And I think that's where Democrats, too, you know, need a little, there's a little reality check going to have to hand over the gavel. Pelosi will not be speaker. Will it be McCarthy? I don't know. Um, because he made the promises, because the Freedom Caucus is starting to make noises, and maybe he might get the speakership if he institutes a bunch of reforms which aren't going to be good for his very own speakership. Like, for instance, making a rule where we can get the speaker out whenever we want. You know, it's not great for a speaker's power. Uh, but this happens over history, that when a speaker becomes weak, they have to concede to the floor members. You have people like MGT, others who are going to want to rebel to create a new story. And then I think there's a third group now increasingly is that while Lynn Cheney and Kessinger say are gone, you have new moderates that are in there. For instance, there are four wins from New York. You know, a lot of them sort of kept their distance from Trump. You have uh, Thomas Kane in New Jersey, son of a very moderate Republican governor. Despite whatever was said in the campaign, a lot of these folks are going to be at odds with each other. So it's going to be a tough crowd to govern. I don't think you're going to have the 1859-style melee in the Congress over the Speaker's election where the sergeant-at-arms has to come in with the mace or something. But you may have a, a tough time electing a Speaker. There may be more than one candidate. It may not be McCarthy now. And even if it is, um, he or whoever will have trouble, I think, getting votes. Um, it's not going to be as easy as it is when you have a little bit more of a majority. But we'll see where that comes in and where we land. If you're a president, if you're President Biden or any president in American history, I would say as a student of political history, if you get a choice of one branch to lose, it's the House. You want to keep that Senate. I had the episode King and Rook about that. You want, as a president, to have the appointment power and the ability to block legislation that comes up from the House. It politically, it also gives you the ability to turn, if you do it right, the House, in effect, into a bit of a, a show um, to where you're showing that they're not able to get things done because the Senate's blocking. This happens in 1995 to Newt Gingrich, even when his party controls the Senate because the Senate, led by Bob Dole, didn't want to pass everything that Newt Gingrich and his House was sending up to him, Okay. So it's a you you want a Senate of your party. You don't want to lose both. That's very difficult then as a president. This is why this this midterm is is interesting. And as I'm recording this, we don't have Nevada. We don't have many of the states yet. I don't know what's going to happen yet, but it looks like it might come down to the runoff in Georgia. I see advantages there for Warnock. Um, you know, some votes were obtained by the Libertarian candidate. He's uh, Walker's not a great candidate. Walker's not going to have Kemp boosting him up, boosting turnout up. Uh, on the other hand, it'll be a national race and both sides will be armed to the teeth and have all kinds of people on the ground. And we'll see what will happen there. But Senate control might once again come down to Georgia. Or we'll see if Nevada pulls out. There's still a lot of votes in Las Vegas to count. 
Kind of like to quote Mick Jagger, you can't always get what you want. Uh, It might be the result of this midterm. Republicans, some of them, expecting a huge wave midterm as if that happens every time. Especially the projections of like 60 seats or 40 seats. That's not even the average. The average from 1922 to 2022, 100 years, is 29 seats. I believe once we factor in 2022, that's going to even go down to 28 seats for lost House seats of a president's party. Here's another thing. It's actually been going down. So you take like since the time TV's been invented, 1954, since the time TV's been in households to 2022, you're at about 24 seats. You want to go since Ronald Reagan's time, 1982 and forward, 22 seats. Might, might come down to 21 averaging in 2022. This is the average loss. So that's what you should have been expecting. You should have been saying it's going to be a wave and wave means, I don't know, 15 to 25 seats. That would be a nicer thing to say aligned with history. So they weren't even right. Could have played the expectation game better. That's just politics and framing kind of 101, and it wasn't done. On the other hand, as I said, I keep hearing about how it's a win, and, and a stave is a real moral win for any president that's able to pull it off. I think it helps Biden internally with Democrats, helps Democratic Party morale, um, all sorts of things. But look, I mean, they didn't get what they wanted either. I think they expected a bit of a row wave, that there would be many more voters coming out with uh, the Dobbs decision on their mind. And that happened in some states, in some cases. It's present in the in the total. I think actually what happened is it's not so much that you didn't get an inflation election or you didn't get a Dobbs election. You got them both at the same time because that's how America works. It's 50 states, a lot of people, a lot of different issues. America doesn't agree on a theme on every election. You you definitely, this election just kind of makes that clearer, what's really going on in almost every election, that there's big differences in opinion, even among people who are of the same party. You can't always get what you want. I mean, Biden goes on TV, asks for a vote to defend democracy and I believe he got a little bit out of it, but that's what he got, a little bit. And you got a little bit of pro-choice voting. And then you got a little bit of inflation voting. That ended up, all of this countered that normal midterm trend. But honestly, as we said, the, the president's party loss has been going down. You've got about half of the midterms last hundred years now where there's less than the average loss. So less than 15 seats, say, lost by the president's party. That's almost half of midterms. And you've got about a third of midterms where it's like really a victory for the president. Maybe they don't gain seats, but it's a pinprick. We got to be more nuanced to think about midterms in our discussions, all of us, myself included. I mean, where we stood before is you say, okay, the president's party always loses seats, but you got a couple like 2002, right after 9-11, 1934, during the Great Depression, 1962, right in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis, where presidents defied odds. And it's like, ooh, that's not enough information. You know, maybe there's a clue there. Maybe president only can do well in a midterm when there's a national emergency that, you know, everyone kind of gets behind the president. 
1998 makes that a little different. What people felt was an overreaction of Congress in impeaching Clinton, maybe 60% disagreeing with that, people thinking Clinton's doing a good job, even if they don't like him personally, went out to the polls, reacted to that, and the president's party in a second term, midterm, which that is one that almost never happens. Usually after eight years, you're tired of that president. You want to vote those that party out of Congress if you can. And President Clinton's party gains seats. Not a lot. That's another thing. None of these gains are a lot in 02, in 34, in 62, or in 98. They're not a lot of seats. So 98 gave you a little signal that, well, there could be some political activity. Certainly Clinton felt it. Uh, Clinton had the disaster midterm of 94. Then you get to 98 and he's doing things like, well, instead of being on that campaign trail a lot, people don't want to see me as the politician. Let me try to get Middle East peace. It was helped by the fact that many Democrats didn't want him campaigning anyway. But, um, you know, with Nixon, it's the opposite. He gets on the campaign trail. And as we discussed in the lonely midterm 1970s, he's able to change that conversation. He's able to turn the issues of economy and inflation into smart pornography, bomb-throwing hippies. You know, we may not agree with his politics, but he is really a, a political master in a lot of ways. And he's the first president to start campaigning in Air Force One, get involved in the midterm, gets Agnew out of there after, you know, trying to put his VP out. Like in 54 and 58, Nixon campaigned for Eisenhower. So initially that's what Nixon does with Agnew, but it's not working out and Agnew gets everybody angry. Nixon takes it over himself. Arguably did better in the midterm than possibly he should have. So I think we have now with 2022 to... You add that to the history, and we've got a little more information. We'd be a little more nuanced about midterms. Certainly, if you're president's party in any midterm, you don't bury your hand, head in the sand like an ostrich. It's not like these are the gods of fate against you, and there's nothing you can do. It's just a tough challenge. A couple of interesting points. So Steve Chabot loses in Ohio, his district in around the Cincinnati area. Uh, he's gerrymandered by other Republicans. Um wanting more Republican seats in Ohio at his expense. He makes history now because Chabot was the longest surviving contract with America congressman. He came in with New Gingrich in 1994, and now he's the last Republican to go from that era. You have your first Gen Z congressman. Miami-Dade goes Republican uh, for the first time in recent memory. It had been close in 2020. But on the other hand, there's a lot of attention to Florida I think it comes in early, and there's a, and it was an overwhelming win for DeSantis. But I think like Phoenix, Cincinnati, and San Diego. These are cities, the counties that they're in go for Bob Dole in 1996. There are now Democratic counties, reliable ones. Alaska gets a Democratic at-large congressman. Palin is defeated. But at the same time, the suburban New York, the Hudson River districts, like Rockland County, kind of a commuter, uh, bus commuter to New York City county, it goes for a Republican congressman, albeit one that did not go like full MAGA or anything like that. You know, you're going to lose Pelosi as speaker. You're going to lose um, Lauren Bobart in Colorado, it looks like, if present trends continue. Everybody gets a little something, which also means everybody didn't get what they wanted. Maybe it's a come to Jesus, come to reality election. What did I have podcasts on all this time? Like, your side is not going to win. Now, if you're an issue person like legalization of marijuana or something like that, 
Your issue may very well win over time, but if you're supporting a party, don't expect your party to ever ultimately win. That doesn't happen in American politics. You're going to win, you're going to lose, you're going to win, you're going to lose, going to rotate a lot. This time it all happens at one election. I really think that's what's going on here. It's politics. Well, yes, yeah, so, so much of this just comes down to framing, which expectations. Look, I mean, McCarthy just said the average loss is 29 and we'll probably come in about 10 to 20. You're not really having this feeling that they have today. We talked about in the Lonely Midterm cast that Nixon was spinning it as like, look, 1970, I lost seats, but I gained in ideological support. Like, okay, some Democrats won that are probably going to support me on some votes, but Republicans lost that weren't my supporters anyway. We gained an independent in New York that's going to fully support Nixon here. So I gained like more ideological support for some of my cultural issues, the war against the hippies, et cetera, you know. You have some of that here. So I'm hearing a lot that like, you know, it is true. Some of the candidates that Trump supported did not perform as well as they should have. But he's also switching out some folks like in Ohio where J.B. Vance is going to be there, in Alabama where he gets his candidate, in North Carolina where you're going to have Ted Budd replacing Burr, who is somebody who voted to impeach Trump. We got to see what's going to happen in Alaska. If Murkowski's defeated in Alaska, you know, watch that one. There's not a lot of attention on that, but that's the Alaska's going to a runoff. You know, if you gain that seat, you could argue there, look, we're losing seats, but I'm gaining more voices. Uh, Sass will be out. Uh, another one of the people that voted in the second impeachment, he's going to become the president of um, University of Florida. So, it's a minor point. I mean, but it's just something to observe. I'm looking at everything as I'm hearing the various spins, like this was a total loss. There's a little bit of for everybody of loss and gain in this thing. We may learn more about what presidents should do in midterms. Like maybe you don't go out and do the kind of traditional presidential campaign, congressional can candidates holding their arm, you know, up high and things like that. But you might want to campaign as being a president and introducing legislation, timing things for the midterm. You see Biden do some of that. Student loans being one of the bigger ones. But I don't think that was amazingly effective either. I just think he did a few things, put himself into the race a bit that uh, were probably helpful for this result, which again is overall is still a negative result. So James Campbell in the Journal of Politics in 1985 did an article explaining presidential losses in midterm congressional elections. There are few patterns in American politics as regular as the loss of House seats by the president's party in midterm elections. At the time he writes this in 85, the average is 30. It has, it's only gone down a seat since then. The extent of the losses has varied considerably. Several theories have attempted to explain the midterm phenomenon. These theories are essentially of two types. The first type is the coattail surge and decline theory. Okay, so keep that in mind. Coattail, surge, and decline. Explains midterm losses by the events of the preceding presidential election. Strong showing by the president in the previous election should produce greater losses. Bigger they are, harder they fall. Second type, the economy popularity theories explains midterm losses by the circumstances surrounding the midterm themselves. The midterm is a referendum on the state of the economy and the popularity of the incumbent administration. Here's uh, nothing Campbell says. An elaborate and sophisticated theory in this vein is the surge and decline theory. The theory explains midterm losses by the difference in the stimulus 
of on-year and off-year elections. Presidential elections are high-stimulus elections. There's a surge of information, interest, and participation. Drops down in the midterms. Now, this is Campbell in 1985. What's changed? Turnout is up. We're near 50%. You weren't getting that in 90. 94, you got something like 34. Goes up in the 1998 midterm or something like 38% turnout. You're not getting that kind of, you know, you're not getting that low turnout anymore. We're getting it much higher. There's more information surrounding midterms. Now, I don't have time to get into his whole study, but Campbell goes through everything. And what he concludes is that uh, these two theories have been examined by him and both of them predict seat losses fairly well. While the coattail surge and decline model predicted seat losses more accurately than the economy popularity model, a model incorporating the elements of the two theories proved to be a more powerful model than either of the individual models, right? So it's some basic here we're looking at, you know, is the president popular? Is the economy good? And then how many seats do they have to lose? Because how much did he actually bring in the first election? Now, Campbell's model helps to explain Carter's 1978, Nixon's 1970, uh, Bush's 20, 2002, Clinton's uh, 1998, and now I would add in there Biden's 2022. Because let's look at the House election 2020. Biden get, comes into office losing 13 House seats. When most of the staves have occurred, the president hasn't pulled in a lot before really close election. 1960 was close. So 62, you get that kind of state midterm. 76 is close. So 78, you get that kind of state midterm. 2020 is close. You get that kind of like, you get a bit of a state. Um, and this is where I'd add to Campbell's research that one variable he's missing is he's assuming they're always low information elections. He's writing in 85. You only have television. You don't even have cable advanced so much yet. That variable, it turns out, is a variable he doesn't even consider one. You can move that up, it, it, it turns out. Then you take the surge coattails effect. Then you take the economy. And we may have something here. 2022 is just going to add more data to that. And Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast 
that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's take a couple listener uh, questions. Um, Paul L. wrote me, and I, I liked his question. I like questions where I learned something. Bruce, you may already, and he's writing about the 70s ephemera episode. Got a lot of response to that. I'll talk about that. Paul L. writes, Bruce, you may already know this, but Woodstock, New York, where Bob Dylan lived, is nowhere near the Woodstock Music and Art Fair where it was held. On current roads, it takes 1.5 hours to drive. Different areas altogether. Now, actually, Paul, I did not know this. And after your email, I looked at a map. I should be familiar with the area. Dylan's house, which is still there, where he was living, where he wanted to get out of it because there were too many people coming, is pretty far from the actual, where the Woodstock Festival was held. Dylan was concerned. He moves down. While I have your attention, Paul writes, I was enjoying the Dylan anecdote, but I felt like there was no punchline. All that build up just to have Dylan shoving Weberman's head in the sidewalk. Anyway, I enjoy your podcast. Thank you, Paul. And I'm glad you asked the question because if, if you feel that way, there might be other listeners who feel the same. So the point of – and everything on the 70s ephemera episode was exactly that. They were supposed to be stories that are like there's a little point to them, but they're not things that are widely known. You know, a lot of historical stories now because of the plethora of sources, you know, people kind of know them. I wanted to find stories from the 70s that weren't well known. And – of course, full disclosure, I already had a few, and so it was a build-off episode where I had the Cosell story, and I had a couple other things left over from 2020's 1976 Democratic Convention episode. We talked about Carter's Convention in New York City. I had a couple things left over about like abortion politics and Howard Cosell and things like that that I didn't get to use, the artwork. And I said, there's enough here. Let me find a few more things and build it out, and it kind of just developed a life of its own and ended up being very large, hence the presentation like an eight-track with programs. The point of Dylan and his troll was that I thought was interesting is that Dylan was sort of forced into the political sphere. That's what this guy, Weberman, wanted. He wanted to um, force him to come out with his politics. And I feel like was telling about that story is now we, a lot of us face that in, in social media, We're kind of called to the carpet. Um, and there's a lot of reaction to the things we said. I mean, a lot of it too. The guy was a little bit, uh, weird, crazy. Um, Paul L also writes, that's interesting information. Um, what surprised me from the Bob Dylan story is that Dylan gave him the time of day. Yeah, me too. And I, I poked around on that even before you wrote the question because I was interested in that too. Why the heck is he talking to him? And I think it's a combo of things. One is 
Weberman was crazy and kind of a nut and going through his garbage. A lot of the contact happens before he's going through his garbage, before that was confirmed. He's also a quasi-journalist because he writes for the East Village Other. And thank you for the reviewer, by the way. This is another reaction I got to the 70s ephemera cast that pointed out that it's not the East Side Other. It's the East Village Other. Two very different things. <laughs> the East Side could be like the Upper East Side. It's a very, like, well-to-do area. You know, East Village in the time we're talking is kind of a your more music renegade area, right? The East Village Other, this kind of journalistic sheet he was writing for and reviewing his songs. And so, plus kind of like a little bit of counterculture ethics, like, hey, somebody reaches out, you talk to them. He doesn't want to seem too high and mighty. And all of these things were a combination. Not only did he give him the time of day, he also, in some cases, reached out to him. Didn't know he was being recorded, as we showed. The additional information that it didn't make it in that episode is that Weberman's the rest of his stories that Weberman's living as is Dylan. And fortunately, a group of people got to Weberman, who he respected from Rolling Stone and people that were in um, music projects that he wanted to be part of and said, we don't want anything to do with you unless you stop harassing Dylan. And so he was forced to drop it and to apologize. However, years later, the same thing he does with Bob Dylan he does with Jacob Dylan and starts insinuating that Jacob Dylan is on heroin and is not telling the world and he sees the needle marks and all of that. So once a troll, always a troll, I guess. Thanks, Paul. See, that was the Nixon year. Bill started that campaign early, and I knew he was a serious threat because, for one thing, I still had a Democrat district. And it was a Democrat year that year for them to win. They picked up more House seats that year just about like they did this last year. So Tom Morris writes on the my History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group on Facebook. 1974 midterm had to be fascinating. What trends could be seen in both parties? Uh, thanks, Tom. 1974 is Watergate, Watergate, Watergate. It's a shellacking. 42 seats are lost by the Republicans. This is when Democrats already have a majority in the House. So just building on. President Ford, his own seat that he vacated in Congress is lost to the Democrats and Richard Vanderdeen takes it. Um, Bob Dole nearly loses his Senate seat. A whole group of Democratic future stars such as Gary Hart, um, George Miller, Henry Waxman, Max Baucus, Paul Simon, the bow tie wearing guy in Illinois. They're going to become congressmen in this and, and senators in this election. Human Events Magazine, very conservative magazine at the time, one that Ronald Reagan would be reading at this time, actually says it's a disaster. Of course, they blame Ford and question whether conservatism can even exist. So you see this kind of existential. They say it's a very precarious time for conservatism's existence in America. Yeah, you, know, you got it. I mean, from their point of view, they've got a 
soup, almost super majority in the House, it, uh, four seats away from Democrats having two thirds of the Senate. And they've got a president they don't like very much either. So they're actually doing this kind of existential flailing the arms that you see very often in politics that X, my brand of politics will be gone forever that we hear so much of. So that's 1974. I mean, that's the way to describe it. One person who doesn't win in this election is Bill Clinton. Uh, I actually have a tape of John Paul Hammersmith, who was a congressman from Arkansas. Bill started that campaign early, and I knew he was a serious threat because, for one thing, I still had a Democrat district. And it was a Democrat year that year for them to win. They picked up more House seats that year just about like they did this last time. Bill's the only one of those that didn't win. You know, all these other guys, uh, Chris Dodd, uh, Normanetta, uh, Tom Daschle, all those guys came that year. And Bill, running in a Democrat district, was the only one that didn't win. And I felt good about that because he should have gone in. I'm loath to correct uh, John Paul Hammersmith on politics there, but uh, Daschle gets into the house in 78. Yeah, so there you hear it from, I've told that story before about Bill Clinton running, so you don't need to tell that again, but here it is from Hammersmith's point of view. That's why Bill occasionally remarks, well, you're responsible for me being in the White House, because you know, <laughs> what he means is if I beat you, I'd have probably gone a different route. Right, right. Oh, knowing Bill, he'd probably find his way in the White House. <laughs> One way or another. <laughs> well, what happened here? Well, Nixon resigns because of Watergate, and people are comforted when President Ford takes over and he says, our long national nightmare is over. But it only takes a month before he loses all of this goodwill or a good amount of it when he makes a Sunday announcement that he will pardon the former president and not just for Watergate, but for any crimes that he may have committed. From Ford's point of view, he's trying to run a country, he wants the story completely off the books. He wants people to stop talking about prosecuting Nixon surprises everyone. It's Proclamation 4311. Says it's in the best interest of the country. It's a tragedy in which we have all played a part. It could go on and on, or someone must write the end to it. I have concluded that only I can do that, and if I can, I must. Now we're a little removed from it, and Ford even gets some credit for the pardon. You have to take yourself back to the time. Man, nobody was doing that, giving him credit for this. Leon Jaworski, the prosecutor, he's really surprised by it. Uh, Congress is in an uproar. The New York Times called it profoundly unwise, unjust. He had never admitted his guilt. He'll apologize later on the David Frost show, but not even a not even the kind of attrition that people wanted to see, that Ford even wanted to see, ever came from Nixon, and yet he gets this pardon. So now we've got a midterm going, and the clock is ticking. Ford does two things. He issues 4313 proclamation that also pardons military deserters and draft dodgers from Vietnam. Anyone who went up to Canada or whatever. But they have to come back. They have to accept what they did and work two years in a public service job. So let's say they deserted after a year of military service. He'll count that year and they have to work a year. They go before a special board, clemency board that Ford sets up. This system is removed once Jimmy Carter becomes president and issues a general amnesty. So he does that, kind of saying, look, I'm pardoning Nixon. I'm also pardoning a significant group of Americans. He also says, I'll speak to Congress. I'll explain my decision. 
And uh, he gets maybe a few points for doing this. Um, certainly any talk of like impeaching Ford is kind of met by his agreement to appear before Congress. But he gets whacked by some of the questions. Elizabeth Holtzman of New York, in particular, Congresswoman, has seven questions. How could you not specify the crimes when you issued the pardon? How could you do this without any acknowledgement of guilt? Was the, Why was the process secret and not open? Why did you not discuss it with Jaworski? He, she asked these questions that are so plain and they're, even if you accept Ford's story, the questions are still there. And he can't really answer any of these. He says something like, you can't pull a bandage off slowly and back to, you know, I needed to start running the country. We got the Russians to worry about things like this. Well, the first thing that Americans are going to get any referendum on Watergate on is the 1974 midterm held on November 5th, 1974. They give that shellacking to Republicans. They're under 150 seats for the first time since the Alf Landon was running 40 years ago in 1936. It affects a lot of things. These new congressmen that are elected, they call them the Watergate babies because it's not just they'll change the politics of America they override several of Ford's veto, vetoes, and a lot of them have to do with funding. So public health, there's an overridden veto on public health expenditure, on educational welfare expenditure, on coal leasing, on public work spending. What they're doing kind of domestically is all they need to do is get a couple of Republicans and the mostly United Democrats, and they can override Ford's vetoes and effectively run the country. They don't override everything. There's certain things the House overrides, the Senate does not. President Ford is asking for support for the evacuation in South Vietnam, asking for support for Cambodia. This congressional majority will block this funding. And this is the beginning. They're going to build on. This majority is going to be around for a while because 76 and 78 weren't terrible elections for them. So you're going to see things like the church committee come out of this group. But they're also going to have effect within Congress. And this is why Speaker Carl Albert, the Democratic Speaker of the House, as they're winning these elections, he's saying, you know, it's kind of a mixed blessing because he knows he's going to have trouble from new congressmen. It's exactly what happens. A lot of them are rebels. Some of them are northern liberals. They don't like that the Democratic Congress is controlled by southern conservatives because of the seniority system. In the South, it's very democratic. They can keep getting elected and elected year after year. They get the seniority. So they're able to introduce new rules that have more power for subcommittees that younger members are often placed on, uh, more power for the party leadership to interject over these really powerful committee chairs, and also allow the party caucus to choose somebody other than the seniority member. Uh, probably a double-edged sword for Democrats. I think on one hand, it's going to reduce that kind of power of these like Southern congressmen block. You're kind of Harry Birds blocking everything. But on the other hand, it's going to be, you know, give more power to northern liberals, probably be part of the eventual decline in support for Democrats in the House and the rise of the Republican uh, majority in the House. But they'll get a lot out of 74. That, it'll take some time. They don't lose the House until 94. So you still have 20 more years of a Democratic House coming. They are going to lose the Senate in 1980. Bob Dole barely wins 
his Senate seat in a race against a physician from Topeka, Roy, 50.8 to 49.1. And this is one like, like we're looking at all those races and it's taking time to count. That's what happened with the 1974 Senate race in Kansas. Roy, who runs against him, really wants to put Dole out of office. Says he's going to be dangerous in the future. He's Nixon's hatchet man. Yeah, he really had it out for him. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. There are a few Republican gains. You asked me to say, like, what's going on on the Republican side? And uh, I mean, not much. Because they've got a new president. They're trying to kind of be on the defensive. They're trying to say, you know, it's not Nixon's Republican Party anymore. But then they could easily be attacked every time they supported Nixon. Um, all a, a number of significant members of the Watergate committee who were defending Nixon are defeated in this election. There are some gains, though. They're kind of localized. In Louisiana, you have this very conservative Democrat running, and he's defeated in a primary by a younger Democrat, Akaze, who says, I'm a national Democrat. You can count on me to support the National Democratic Party. He wins the primary. And then in the general election, it comes down to 14 votes between him and his Republican opponent because people who had supported the conservative Democrat in the primary are now turning around and supporting the Republican more. They find out a voting machine had malfunctioned, a special elections and ordered by the court. And in that election, the Republican Moore wins 54%. You get a couple others. You got a, a, a seat up in Maine where a very young uh, Republican beats an older Democrat. You're going to see two 25-year-olds win this election. And so you're going to see baby boomers enter uh, Congress. I believe that's for the first time. I could be wrong on that. Then you have Richard Kelly. We talked about him where he's a maverick Republican anyway, and he's able to win that election. Okay, now this is from back in August, but I wanted to um, mention this. Kieran O'Keefe wrote on the Fans of my, uh, my History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. I recently listened to the January episode about Orville Faubus. This got me thinking about the South's shift from being overwhelmingly controlled by Democrats to a Republican stronghold. Now, this is the episode about Orville Faubus, the segregationist governor, and his relationship with Clinton went, went um, ranged from him and Bill Clinton being on the same bandstand to Bill Clinton having Faubus as an employee, who he fired, to them running an election against each other. I made these fairly rudimentary charts showing how the transition played out in Arkansas, in the House of Representatives. I currently live in Arkansas. In Arkansas, Democrats took control at the end of Reconstruction and didn't lose the state legislature until Obama's presidency. The same was true in Alabama, in Louisiana, and Mississippi, all of which had Democratic-controlled legislatures from Reconstruction to Obama. Arkansas was technically the last Southern state, unless you count West Virginia, to abandon the Democrats. What really stood out to me is just how completely dominant Democrats were in the legislature onto the early 2000s. The earliest signs of the shift began in the 60s 
but that was felt more significantly at the presidential level. Democrats controlled the Arkansas legislature until the 2012 election. Yes, Arkansas is a little bit different type of state with a really strong Democratic Party and resistant to the kind of trend that you might see like the Jesse Helms, Strom Thurmond type thing where Republicans started winning seats and really conservative Republicans started winning seats in the South and Southern voters became comfortable with Democrats. We talked about in the episode about the South Carolina primary in its history, how there was still a significant Democratic Party that could win elections, even as late as 1980 in South Carolina. Arkansas is one of these states that really held out. You're right, till about Obama. Now, why is it? And I think this is the one factor that, uh, and you can't see his chart, but basically it's this like solid blue line where the House, Arkansas House of Representatives has like 100 members who are Democrat or so. And it only goes down a little bit in the 60s and then goes way down after Obama. You know, it goes down to like 20 seats or so after Obama. So the reason it goes down to the 60s, that tells you some of this story here, that the Republican Southern strategy isn't just one thing. There were some more, say, progressive-minded Republicans trying to, you know, win in, in traditionally Southern states and be a little bit different. That movement, you saw the inklings of that beginnings in the 1920s in Texas, the Republicans who wanted to start, like, have the Republican Party be the anti-Klan party in that state. It was actually rejected. Uh, we talked about that in the episode about John W. Davis. The fight takes place in the 1924 Republican convention. You had a few Democrats in Virginia, in North Carolina, who, in Texas, who would not sign the Southern Manifesto. Now, Some of them still voted against civil rights bills. They wouldn't sign that like overtly segregationist Southern manifesto. We will not comply with Brown versus the Board of Ed. And some of those Republican Southerners will end up voting for the 24th Amendment to eliminate the poll tax. Some won't. So you you do have some more moderate, say, Republicans running in the South. The one that stands out the most, of course, is Rockefeller, Winthrop Rockefeller in Arkansas. I think when you think about the Arkansas House of Representatives and the Democrats there, some of them in a lot of cases are conservative Democrats, but party unity pressure was able to, that's how Bill Clinton's career partially is started. There's a strong party. People don't want to rock the boat within the party there. And Bill Clinton could get through things, even as governor, that they may not agree with out of a kind of party unity in some cases. Set them up well for a future run for president. Now, it should be noted that what Clinton passes in Arkansas does not reflect the kind of president he was. It might have reflected how he campaigned in 92 and what you might have thought was going to happen in the first few months or something. But it was kind of trade-offs like, okay, we'll give teachers more money in Arkansas, but then we'll sick them with a test that many teachers found, frankly, insulting. Might still today. We'll improve the roads, but we'll tax citizens, everyday citizens, with an increase in car fees. I mean, that one ends up getting him losing the first election as governor. He wasn't Bernie Sanders by any means. If we go back further, I talked about this in the 1890s cast, uh, sourced from Arkansas African-American newspapers at the time, that there were hopes that Arkansas might indeed become the first state where African-Americans dominated politics. 
It was a close thing in the early 1890s. You didn't have the restrictive policies in Arkansas that you had in other southern states. Then it came like a ton of bricks. And just by the time you get to the mid-1890s, they're passing these segregationist towns. You know, and I talked about the one town where the popular spring was segregated, even though most of the people in town had no problem with it being integrated as it had been for years. It's a vocal minority in Arkansas that starts changing its laws. And it wasn't as quick as the other southern states. You retain a large African-American population. They have representation um, very often in the state. And so your point, Kieran, that um, while the southern strategy thing happened all over, it was a bit different in Arkansas. And that's the only reason you got Bill Clinton as president. Um, a guy like him, I don't think it happens in Virginia I don't think it happens in North Carolina. I think it's a lot tougher. And part of it is a sadder reality that segregationist people like Faubus, who never truly apologized for what he did, just stayed Democrat and never converted. In the 1980 election, Carter is less than 1%. Behind Reagan, while he's in Arkansas, while he's losing the national race by nine points. So you still have this, yeah, this Democratic vote that lingered in Arkansas. Why? I guess among other factors is that Winthrop Rockefeller was basically the Republican Party in Arkansas. And he took a very different line than Goldwater and Nixon on civil rights. He wins election in 1966. He integrated schools and he established commissions on race. But he's also a wealthy Rockefeller. And he wasn't popular personally. He won because the Democratic opponents were bad or offensive. Another significant Republican in the state of Arkansas is John Paul Hammerschmidt. And again, there's a little bit of tape on him from an oral history. He's the chairman of the Republican Party when Winthrop Rockefeller runs. And you hear about it a little bit on his strategy. Wynn had created a separate organization. He called it like something opportunity or something. You know, he, he gave it a name. And he brought down someone else's staff. And he was courting the, the media. And they, they were enhanced by Rockefeller. Sure. Was it because, yeah, enamored. That's the word I'm looking for, enamored. With, with the uh, Rockefeller name. So... Hugh Patterson and all the guys in the powerbrokers that time, they all like when his money and his name and his ideas too. Yeah, he was, he he was pretty progressive. Good liberal progressive idea. Yeah. But anyway, uh, but finally we did get that all together. And here John Paul Hammerschmidt talks about his decision to run. He's going to run in 1966, the same year that Winthrop Rockefeller wins in Arkansas. So we were kind of desperate to get somebody to run for the third district, but we said we can't just let that seat go vacant after you get forty percent. So we went or somebody said, Well John, well, why don't you do that? And I said, Well, you know, I don't mind supporting prima donnas, but I don't want to ever be one. Uh note this too, Hammerschmidt talks about that Rockefeller had a desperation, I guess, and not a lot of people running as Republicans, they actually have to pay candidates, but not Hammerschmidt. I, I never took any money from the Rockefellers. I'm not one of those that 
Wynn hired a lot of times he'd pay people to run, you know, like right. constitutional jobs, but I'm not right. one of them. I ran on my own. I loan myself $20,000. But it is also interesting to see um, how he does it, which is he can't quite be a Winthrop Rockefeller person. But they make these slick ads, and they look like a Rockefeller ad. And I thought to myself, well, I'd, I'd take it in, in their room, and I'd change it. I'd make it look like an old grocery store ad. You know, just, and uh, so I, I did all my print advertising that way. I'd change it. Every Saturday, they'd have me a new slick ad. And I'd, you know, the format was there, but I'd change it all, the wording and the, the script, everything. So this would be my point. Rockefeller comes in, and then this is how Arkansas, for the first time since Reconstruction, sees what a Republican is. And he has a galvanizing effect within the Democratic Party in Arkansas. So Democrats were able to keep being blue-collar in the state, and Republicans couldn't take off like they did in others. Um, You know, in the 1970s, Republicans are making big gains in southern states. They basically tell Clinton, if you want this uh, Senate seat, you know, might be available to you, but you're going to have to run in a primary with other Democrats. We can almost give you the governorship just for making a strong showing in 74 and being kind of a young political star here. So, yeah, that's what's going on in Arkansas. Now you have Governor um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who you know from being Trump's press secretary, and the state is almost a reverse of where it was in the 1970s. Remember, it was still a little competitive in the um, 90s and 2000s. And now uh, I don't see where you're going to get a Democrat elected anytime soon. I want to thank you for listening. And um, if you like the program, please tell someone about it. Spread the word. Helps a lot. So here's uh, Paige Brousseau, longtime listener on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group. A view of the election from Michigan. First, a disclosure. I'm a former GOP county vice chair. I ran for state house as a Republican and was a cruise delegate to the National Convention in 2016. I haven't been as involved over the last few years. There's no way to dice it. It was a wipeout for the GOP in Michigan. Not only were their governor, SOS, and AG reelected with high negatives, but three of four swing U.S. House seats also went down. Then the state legislature is Democratic-controlled for the first time since the 1980s. So this is Paige uh, Brousseau uh, saying this. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that just on that point that uh, – There was a lot of talk about Florida and DeSantis scored a big win. But then when you get to Michigan, it's a huge win for Democrats. So everybody got something something on uh, Tuesday night, right? And everybody lost something. Here's uh, Brousseau again. Redistricting had a lot to do with this. In in 2018, a nonpartisan committee referendum was passed. This resulted in many Democratic strongholds being diluted and spread out now so that the only black member of Michigan's U.S. House is a Republican. Uh, Michigan also had an abortion referendum, which passed. The referendum uh, drastically changed Michigan's law, even making it more pervasive than the pre-Dobbs law. Brousseau writes, it allowed 
allows abortion up to birth without parental notification or permission. It allows gender sex treatment at any age without permission. Neither was the case part of Dobbs. Campaign ads from June until this Tuesday for every race governor were all abortion all the time. Um, for instance, in my congressional districts, GOP nom Paul Jung said he didn't support any federal bill restricting abortion and that it was a state issue. Representative Dan Kildee hammered him for months, saying he was too extreme. And day one, Paul Jung will vote with MAGA Republicans and strip you of your rights. Um, a lot there. One of the things Page also uh, talks about is the role of Michigan Right to Life, a group. Um, Michigan has a quirk where ballot amendment can be passed by the state legislature prior to the election and the governor cannot veto it. So the GOP controlled legislature could have passed a 15, a 20 week ban on abortion and rejected the insane language regarding parental notification. But Michigan right to life stated any politician who voted for any ban that wasn't a total ban would be primaried. Okay. Now, to be clear, this is uh, Paige Brousseau. This is his view from Michigan. I'm reading. And so there's a lot of political statements in there. And that's not um, here nor there. But just a couple of points that I do want to address in there. Because you see how like extremes win. You know, what he's really talking about. Let's stay away for the moment from interpretations of the parental notification. But, um, You know, there's Michigan Right to Light saying they're going to oppose anyone who votes for any type of ban, so you can't moderate. You know, and you see that impacting race here. On the gerrymandering, you see gerrymandering, for instance, um, what to reduce gerrymandering, in effect, you do run up against. What about representation of minorities? This is a perennial issue in the gerrymandering debate because you may run into a situation if you're diluting or taking some vote from a city and attaching it to suburban areas. So I've heard this described as pizza versus bagel, right? A bagel is round with a big center in the middle where a city might be, where all the Democratic votes are in one district or a big chunk of them. Or you can do it pizza style where everybody's getting a little bit if you picture triangular slices of pizza going into a city, everyone's getting a little bit of that uh, of those votes in the city. And it really depends on how, you know, that's where the debate is. Um, I would question, though, that the my answer to are you creating community through a minority district? You might be by concentrating votes. But some of the suburban districts, when you look at these gerrymandered districts, look at some of them in Pennsylvania, look at Jim Jordan's in Ohio. I mean, how can you say that some of these things are a community either? So I think that uh, gerrymandering is a difficult issue. It's been obviously the Supreme Court in its last take on it decided that it was too complicated. It's politics and judges need to stay out of it. I don't think that'll be forever. Because I think it is a real issue and people are getting so good at it that we have to watch it. So maybe the solution is, you know, you go with some of these commissions. They also do it in California where I think some Democrats are pining for the days when they might have had control over it. So it's a, it's a tough issue because defining it is tough. And there's some mathematical formulas that you can use, but all of them are anchored 
in a subjective politics. So a lot on that. There was another point I wanted to address in what Page said here. Oh, yeah, and of course the opponent. You know, look, I mean, um, this was a... I watched some of these ads during this campaign. And, um, okay, on abortion, there was some... extreme, um, probably painting of candidates. I watched ads where, I mean, you would have thought the way they flashed from somebody, um, on some black and white video security footage, slamming someone down on a street or slashing them with a knife and then boom, flashing to the opposition candidate as if that candidate caused all the crime in the world. So yeah, in crime and abortion, there were some pretty extreme ads. I think what people are going to argue, though, is that, you know, the way the parties have gotten is that um, their argument's going to be, hey, if you allow a guy in there of one party, he's going to elect a speaker and, you know, will or may be convinced by whatever his assertions are that, uh, you know, he should vote for it along party lines. So you never know. You know, people, this isn't an era where people are trusting statements made and assertions made by politicians. Um, but that's a little bit of the view from Michigan. I get it, though. It's like this was a good year for Democrats because Republicans were forced into an extreme um, stance that some members of the Michigan Republican Party probably didn't want. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Uh We have a Patreon if you want to help support the program. And if you like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening.